first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the phone? No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. Jason Benetti, I think, is—I think pound for pound, maybe the best play-by-play man in any sport. Not yeah, that I know the regional guys in basketball or, or hockey that well, but but Benetti and I got to interview him at spring training a couple of years ago, and he's—he's awesome. he's just so unbelievably um, well versed in the history of the game. He's so unbelievably well versed in stats, but also in the emotions and and, and the stories and extraordinarily funny in this very sneaky way, extraordinarily erudite without being pretentious. And you want to talk about chemistry. I think he and Steve Stone have just an unbelievable repartee. And it's so funny to see what comes out of Steve Stone with him compared mm-hmm. to the years that Stone was with Hawk Harrelson. Oh, God. I actually think Stone is a better broadcaster now with Benetti than he ever was with Hawk. Yeah. Um, so, when, when you talk about like a broadcaster wins above replacement, the the White Sox, you could not go like from a lower to a higher point. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I mean, it's funny, like people do, like Hawk does have his defenders. I think Hawk has a certain kind of vibe that if you if you catch that, if you're on that vibe, you can ride it and, and have fun, you know, the folksiness. Um, but the way Hawk, I phrase Hawk was never my vibe. Yeah, the way I phrase it is, if Larry the Cable Guy had never existed, Hawk would be the one to invent get or done <laughs> during the broadcast. That's probably right. Yeah, yeah. like I, I would guess the Venn diagram between blue collar comedy tour fans and White Sox fans who actually dug Hawk might be pretty close to a perfect circle. I would also say that, uh, as you well know, the Northern Illinois Southern Illinois divide is is very acute. Okay, and I think a lot. I think a lot of a lot of. Um, uh, any any White Sox fans uh, in in Southern Illinois are almost exclusively in the in the Hawk Harrelson fan camp. Yeah, uh, and a big part I, I'm I'm sure, and and again, this is coming from my fandom's perspective, but a big part of why a lot of Sox fans dug Hawk Harrelson is because Cub fans just couldn't stand his ass. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and anything yeah. that gets under our skin, they're they're in favor of. So sure, yeah, sure. And frankly, uh, I can't blame them. No, I mean, yeah. You're, I, I, you're, yeah. You're, my, my younger brother is a Cubs fan. You're all insufferable. Yes, yes, immensely so. And uh, now that uh, we're still only four years removed from a world championship, even worse. So, yeah. But, uh, oh, God, it's so true. No, I mean, you really are following the Red Sox blueprint, and, I'm, and that's not a compliment. Yeah, I, I, yeah and you, you get that vibe a little bit. Um, where I was talking last week uh, with Alex Reamer, who's uh, my, uh, my deputy managing editor from Boston, and – uh, he talks about kind of the, the ways that it's changed Red Sox fans. And I was warned ahead of time that winning a World Series, you'd see the fans get spoiled immediately. And I think it manifests itself in the way that the Cub fan base treats Chris Bryant now, where mm. um, because he hasn't 
gotten back up to that MVP level of 2016 over the past couple of years. They assume right. that that means bust, even though the current level he's operating at is still Hall of Fame track worthy. So uh, they've decided that somehow that, that he's already peaked and you can't get anything out of him going forward. And I, I don't understand that way of thinking. It, it really hurts, honestly. Personally, that's just fans. I mean, I, I am deeply suspicious of anybody who wants to be a member of such a ravenous mob. <laughs> you know, and that, and that cuts across every fan group, across every sport in every country in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, it just, it just creates such emotional highs and such emotional lows that whiplash so fast. Yeah. Um, as and, someone and, who repeatedly yelled the phrase fucking Christ in front of my grandmother after, after Alfonso <laughs> Soriano dropped a fly ball, get me. Yeah. A little bit, a little bit. I'm there. Yeah, no. Yeah. You haven't got, you, you've gotten over that 17 years later. Uh huh. Really? Yeah. It's, it's not seared in my memory at all. Uh, yeah. I, I think approaching like your membership in fandom, it's, it's weird because I, what I, I couldn't agree more with what you're saying in terms of just the awfulness of mob mentality and, and witness the aftermath of game six in 2003 for no better example of that in the world. Uh, and yet uh, there is also something about it where, I mean, there's nothing I want more in this world than to be back at Wrigley field at the end of every game singing, go Cubs go along with 40,000 people. So it's, it's, yeah. I, I, I have to kind of balance both those perspectives out in my mind. You're always chasing the dragon. Um, with with fandom that's the thing because you're 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 absolutely right because like sports is the only live narrative that we have where um a, a game a season a career it's a story being written that neither the person reading the story nor the person writing the story has any idea what's going to happen um and there are opposing forces writing their own stories going up against each other all the time so the elation i mean think about the elation that you have when you're like reading a really amazing book or going back to alfred hitchcock when you're watching a hitchcock movie and feeling that form of suspense when all of a sudden that like you as the audience member knows that what you're watching or what you're consuming that thing has no idea how it's going to end when the side that you have picked, the protagonist, the good guy, the main character that you have chosen in that story emerges victorious. It's such a, it's such a release. It's yeah. such a, it's such a catharsis. And then when you have decided you have bonded yourself to that, you're always chasing that experience. And then when you don't get it, yeah, it's, it's, it's a deep, deep form of withdrawal. Oh yeah. Um, and then to realize that all of a sudden you're part of a community that's feeling those exact same things is very, very powerful and exciting mm -hmm. too. Absolutely. So, um, but it's also incredibly destructive. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's almost like you have to keep reminding yourself that this doesn't matter. This doesn't matter, even though it's, it's forgetting the part that doesn't matter that sometimes leads to the most fun of it. So, yeah. It, it's, sure. No, it's uh, the, 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 great, the great Italian soccer coach, Arrigo Saki, once said that sports is the most important of the least important things. Mm, love it. You know, and uh, Sean that sports is the reward for a functioning society. So uh, that that doesn't and yet, <laughs> really lead <laughs> off that, but it's it sounded like something intelligent to say in response. Uh, not, not to mention that um, uh, it's how, how American of us that we're basically running up a credit card bill. Oh God, yeah, you yeah. Know, we're, dem we're 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 de we're demanding things that we actually can't afford in this yes. culture. We'll dig into that in. 
30 seconds here, I'll do a quick show open and we will get right into that discussion because, yeah, we right. got right into that. This is the Three Strikes You're Out podcast, part of the Outsports Podcast Network, episode number 35, the Justin Verlander episode of the Three Strikes You're Out podcast. My name is Ken Schultz, contributing writer to Outsports, Baseball Prospectus, and Cubs Den, and still technically comedian if technically comedy ever exists again. Uh, but <laughs> You're being is, very charitable. Yeah, being very charitable with... with uh, with the concept of laughter, too, let's face it. <laughs> the other voice you are hearing uh, on the other end of this podcast has appeared regularly on MLB Network and MLB Now and has been a contributor to Beyond the Box Score and Deadspin back when that was something to be proud of. Evan Davis is joining Hello, us. Hello, Ken. Sky point to Deadspin. Let's, let's yeah, I know. RIP, glory to God. Thank you so much for having me on the show. This is very exciting. I was telling you off mic that I have not... Uh, been on a mic in 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 quite some time it is so this um, is going to be this is going to be a journey for all of us i i am thrilled to be the one to repop your mic cherry is that a is yes. that a phrase at all is, i'll take it i'll take it, it i'll put that on my business card. That that's what entered my mind in that particular moment <laughs> yes but uh nonetheless we will get past this and uh yeah so let's get right into what we were about to lead into we are as this gets released one week until opening day and in like a world that's not on fire, that's the best possible phrase I could give you. But right now, like one week to opening day, what do you feel in in response to that? Um, don't feel good. Don't feel good about it. I get um, it. I am a little perplexed by the ways in which some members of the media have approached the impending opening day. Um, in, in a lot of respects, treating this as though it were a normal season or at the very least kind of a quirk in the season, like, oh, 60 games. How do we figure this out? How does this affect your depth chart? You know, um, whereas the, we, we have never encountered a season like this in professional baseball history in 150 plus years of, of professional baseball in the United States. Um, and it's not for a reason that I think you can really argue has uh, a yay side and a nay side. Uh, COVID-19 is, uh, as far as I can tell, only getting worse in the United States rather than getting better or even plateauing. And Major League Baseball has structured itself so that 30 teams will be flying to 28 localities over the course of three months several and, which are in florida arizona california texas yeah that's almost a third of mlv teams in general and those are the, just the worst spots and we're not even talking about cook county in illinois where yep. you live or mm -hmm. where the cubs and the white Sox play as well as uh king county in washington where the mariners are and um just go down the list. I mean, I was just looking at data this morning where basically the only place where COVID-19 cases aren't spreading among major league baseball locations is Toronto. <laughs> and uh, what's the difference there? Uh -huh. I wonder. Mm. Um, and, and even that at Trudeau, Trudeau's house. Exactly. And, and, and it's, it, that's even a complicated case because by Canada's own um, metrics, they don't feel like they're doing a, a, a perfect job of, of getting cases down, even though cases are decreasing and are decreasing at a pretty healthy clip. Um, they're just holding themselves to a higher standard than we are. And 
and and even beyond just the numbers you know that any team that plays the blue jays not to mention any time the blue jays go on the road they're going to be crossing a national border and that's going to get pretty complicated with how comfortable the canadian government is going to put up with that kind of behavior um from teams that are yeah i mean the rays play the blue jays yeah yeah you know that's a very very serious thing to consider um and and I, 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 I've been saying this since April when first talk of like how the season was going to get started again began, um, where there's no other story, in my opinion, in sports right now than the virus and how the virus is going to get managed. And it's not clear to me at all that baseball has done the right thing. Um, and you know, they've, they've tried to tout how low their, their test positive rate has been up to now. Um, despite the chaos that that first weekend of intake tests were, um, that it doesn't mean that things aren't going to get better. Um, I, I am no epidemiologist. I'll be the first to admit it. I am no public health policy expert, but when I, uh, am confronted with something so important about which I know very, very little, I, I tend to defer to the, to the judgment of the experts. And basically the consensus among epidemiologists in the country are telling us that you have, things have to go better than perfect in order to prevent an outbreak. And things are far from even good right now. Um, there, are, and, are no, and, there are no two scarier concepts in my mind then things have to go better than perfect and a sport run by Bob, Rob Manfred. <laughs> Almost said Bob Manfred, which uh, honestly, I, I'd rather go it's a, with. It's a Freudian slip if there yeah. ever was one. And he's not covered himself in glory in the way that he's handled no. this. He's been um, very, at most of the times that he has spoken in public have been to defer responsibility from his office. Um, it's, it's, it's fairly clear that he did not have the consensus of ownership during the labor issues uh, back in May and early June. And he does not seem to be able to wrangle um, uh, uh, an effective response to the way the virus is, is being handled now um, based on the comments that he made to Mike Rizzo, GM of the, of the Washington Nationals. You know, Mike Rizzo was quite quite stern in saying how unacceptable it was with the way that the league handled um, the testing uh, fuck-ups uh, over Fourth of July weekend. Mm-hmm. And Manfred apparently uh, charged him with insubordination for saying that. Um, if there's one thing that the league needs to get right, it's handling the testing protocols, especially that given the fact that they have been so insistent on players taking responsibility for their own behavior. Um, players do need to take responsibility for their own behavior, but as but baseball is almost serving as um, a, a, a metonym for the, the nation as a whole, where federal and state governments are basically telling people, you need to take care of your own shit. And, and if anything goes wrong, it's your fault ignoring the ways in which they are not mandating mask rules in certain states. Uh, corporations are not 
uh, offering paid sick leave to their employees who have basically no choice but to go to work. And then they're being put in working conditions that are not safe. Um, we're seeing that right now in Major League Baseball play out. Um, it, it's the natural impulse, I think, for someone to say, well, the health and safety protocols were collectively bargained and the union agreed to those protocols. Um, but what that ignores is that the that the owners ran down the clock on economic issues that they had absolutely no right to negotiate or bargain over and forced uh, a very rushed job uh, to try and get the health protocols in place. And one thing that the players really fought for and didn't get was um, players who are themselves low risk but live with high risk individuals. Uh, if those players opted out, would they get service time and their salaries, their prorated salaries, and they're not going to. Um, and a lot of players are continuing to opt out regardless. But what, what's the trend? What's the pattern? Who are these players who are opting out? They're veterans who have made their nut. They've made their money, so they're not financially insecure. Or they're veterans who are pretty far down the depth chart um, who kind of think, well, this isn't really worth it for a 60-game season. Um, often those two groups are one and the same. Um, any young players who aren't uh, out, out of arbitration or pre-arbitration at this point are very, very few and far between. And the most high-profile example of that is Michael Kopech, pitcher for the White Sox, who's coming off of Tommy John surgery and was at least part of the reason that he decided to opt out was he was very nervous about ramping up too quickly and screwing up a fresh owner collateral ligament in his pitching arm. And he knows just how valuable he could potentially be once he does hit arbitration and free agency. And he doesn't want to screw that up by re-injuring himself. And so what, what the league and the owners have basically put players in the position of is to say, um, you don't really have a choice if you can't afford to ride out uh, uh, the season not on the field. Uh, Kike Hernandez, the utility man for the Dodgers, made comments about that to the press just uh, this week, saying, I have, uh, I can't remember if his wife is either pregnant or they just had a baby. It's one of the two. But he basically said, like, if, if I were a free agent or if I had a contract, I would opt out. Um, but I'm not. And I recognize that. It, it, this is the opportunity for me to position myself for free agency. So if I don't play, I'm in financial trouble. That's not a real choice. That's not, that's not a choice at all. And Russell Carlton, a baseball prospectus, wrote a wonderful piece this week that highlighted that exact fact. When you and I, who are very statistically minded and oriented, we are going to have to parse a bunch of data that comes out of the season that's built on the backs of labor that was not um, – uh, uh, put to use in good faith, mm -hmm. not in the most strictly legal definition of the term good faith versus bad faith. But when you basically are telling somebody your money or your life or your money or your family's lives, how is that a choice? Mm -hmm. That's, uh, and to, to that point earlier too, another example that popped into my head, uh, Brock Holt, who at this point has been around the game for what, uh, four or five years. So he's also getting close to, free agency and Absolutely. has already won a world series, been a playoff hero with, with the Red Sox. So you'd think mm -hmm. established himself pretty well at this point in MLB, but he's also told the media that, look, I've got to show up because otherwise if I don't show up to this, I don't think I'll ever get offered another major league contract again. And that, as you say, 
that's a horrifying thing to, to realize, especially in an environment where you're going to be around thousands of other people and, and the people that they encounter. And nothing to me emphasizes just how little or how little uh, MLB cares about player health than the fact that, yeah, they're, as you say, are, are telling them that uh, you have to follow these protocols and this is a very individual responsibility kind of thing that you're doing. Meanwhile, we're going to have you bat in front of Joe West without wearing a mask, a man who has repeatedly gone on the record as saying that he thinks that the coronavirus numbers are inflated and a hoax, and no one is bothering to stop him from being close to everybody who steps up to the plate or every catcher in baseball. Uh, and you want to turn around and scream to Joe, Chinwaddle does not stop the virus. But <laughs> it, it, yeah, it, 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 it's yet another example. And it, it's, it's such a damn American response at this point where we were given the, the option when we went into lockdown and when we had all the stay-at-home orders issued, that, okay, are we going to take a step back and realize, does people's humanity finally matter, or are we going to just kind of keep pushing forward with the capitalist machine and <laughs> eventually pretend that, that we can be fine, we can emerge from this, and we can keep the economy going? And, and we chose our path. We chose capitalism. We chose the economy. Baseball certainly chose its path. And and yeah, there, there is definitely something hugely disturbing to me uh, that, that we just don't really care about the humanity of the players and, and the risk that they're putting themselves through in order to essentially just entertain the masses while we're all kind of figuring out what the hell we're doing as a country. Uh, so in that way, baseball, I guess, symbolizes America. So yay, peanut <laughs> cracker jack. At, at how often that is that is the case, whether it comes to labor or whether it comes to race. Um, in, in so many ways, baseball ends up becoming uh, this, this symbol for how American society does not really function in the way that it should. And, and, and I, as a member of the baseball media, I, often, I, I continually come back to the ways in which there are some very high-profile national members of the baseball media that I think just aren't putting it front and center. And what was, in, it's interesting that when the main story was the labor dispute, which it should be obvious to anybody at this point was entirely driven by um, owner's greed and- Rob Banford's bordering, edit. Yeah, bordering on, bordering on legal, like, like uh, uh, lose a grievance kind of bad faith uh, bargaining um, was a stall tactic. And during that time, Many reporters, even ones who wanted to take ownership to task, would try and both sides it and say, well, the players, they're, really, they're just too dug in. They got to be able to um, uh, meet the owners halfway here, and they're probably going to leave money on the table. And it's for the good of the game because the game needs to come back. It's important for the American soul for baseball to be played. And then they would, and then some would often throw in a line at the end. We're saying, and what we're also forgetting is that it's not about money. Money isn't the enemy. The virus is the enemy. <laughs> and technically yeah. that is true. Yeah. But those same writers right now aren't really talking about the virus that much. Yeah. And when they do, they talk about it in this, in a way that's just almost like this inconvenience rather than an existential threat to the game. Mm -hmm. And, and, and it's that attitude that I think really 
kind of drives me up a wall a little bit. Like it's, it's, I understand that there was a draft and that there needed to be a schedule that would be released and that there would be roster decisions that would be made. And there's a fantasy league, there are fantasy leagues that are about to get fired up again. And, and, um, all of the things that kind of comprise the normal beginning of a baseball season, that machinery is going to continue to move if the baseball season happens. But I think that I, I just don't understand how that can take prior priority over something that I, I, I don't wish to sound so incredibly pessimistic, but it's really hard for me to imagine how, at best, a player isn't going to end up in the hospital during this, mm -hmm. and, and 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 that's the best case scenario. If you catch my drift, um, this is an eco. This is an ecosystem of approximately ten or eleven thousand people. Once you factor in not only players and coaches and dugout staffs or lock, clubhouse staffs, but also members of the front office who are going to be at the games, members of the press but also uh, grounds crews, um, cleaning staffs, but also um, people who fall outside of the testing pr protocols of Major League Baseball, which are namely the bus drivers mm -hmm. and the hotel staffs and yep. the airline crews. And you fold them into the bubble, which isn't a bubble, um, along with 28 different localities all of which are have different health and safety uh rules themselves um and shout out my friend bradford william davis at the new york daily news who has done amazing reporting demonstrating how there's not been any sort of centralized coordination between the teams the league and all of these local health officials um there is just such a large potential for this to get out of control. And when Joe Madden says to the press, um, you know, players need to look inside themselves and decide if they can't handle the protocols, then that's the reason for them to opt out as though that is somehow the main driver of whether to play or not to play, whether you can be responsible enough to do it. Yeah, that just... seems absurd to me because just one more thing, when Freddie Freeman's wife, says on Instagram, my husband is incredibly sick and we did everything right while we were in quarantine and this still happened to us, that should be the light bulb moment for everybody. It was certainly the light bulb moment for Nick Marcakis when he talked to Freeman on the phone and he said that was the thing that tipped him over to decide to opt out. How does that not get through to people when you don't exist inside a bubble, when you have such a large, large ecosystem there's no way that the virus can't get in no matter how often you're wearing a mask or how often you're socially distancing when you're inside the ballpark. It's yeah. just confounding to me. Oh yeah. And, and the Cubs uh, to go back to, to that uh, example that I know well, and Tommy Hottaby, the pitching coach in much right. the same way as Freddie Freeman had uh, a story to tell of, yeah, I was distancing. I was wearing a mask. I was doing everything and I got it and I got it real bad. And uh, yeah. he was on, the, the score the sports radio station out here telling a story and it was a tough but necessary listen uh, mm -hmm. and I think it sounds like that at least among the Cubs players really sunk into them that his example and and it sounds like or every indication that I have is that they as a team are taking it as seriously as they can especially because they know and are close to someone who has uh, who mm -hmm. has gone through that uh, 
And to go back to uh, to Joe Madden for a second, to to uh, I, I, I guess maybe not try to explain him, but I, I do know that when his quote first hit the media, um, a lot of people got real, real mad and understandably so. But part of that, it it sounds like in retrospect that Bob Nightingale tweeted out that specific part of the, of the quote without any context. And it was more Madden kind of just discussing what in his mind, uh, the seriousness of the protocols and, and the idea that uh, they're there because if you, if you are unable or if you can't, and if you know you can't follow this, then of course you shouldn't be playing right now. That, that, uh, I, I don't believe he was using them as a way to attack like Mike Trout, for example, for having doubts about it, because I mean, just from a logical standpoint, if you're Mike Trout's manager, why would you ever attack him in print? Like that seems like a perfect way to lose the entire clubhouse. Uh, and I get where everybody on Twitter, I mean, Joe is a 70 year old man and in many ways is disappointing in the ways a 70 year old man is, but I don't think in that, in that case in particular, he was going after, uh, guys who would choose to opt out necessarily. Yeah. I mean, I read the, I read the quote, the, the full quote in, in context, and it actually didn't really soften it for me, in my mm. opinion. I think that perhaps it, it softened it just insofar as, yeah, he might not have been directly unambiguously attacking players for uh, being irresponsible, but still the underlying tone to me was that the main driver of an opt to opt out or not to opt out decision came down to whether you could be personally responsible to handle it. In other words, in Madden's mind and in the minds of, of, of a lot of people, which I think is unfortunate is that, if you follow baseball's protocols, you're going to be okay. In other words, mm. the protocols are good. They are sufficient in order to protect people. Um, David O'Brien of The Athletic, who is a, the, the Braves beat reporter uh, over at The Athletic, um, has, has gotten into some spats with some people where he has basically said, there's really no way for baseball players to cause an outbreak or to spread this disease oh, because, the, because the pool is just too small. And we should be focusing our energies uh, elsewhere. And as long as they're playing without fans, uh, everybody's going to be fine. And as long as players uh, do their jobs and wear their masks and socially distance, then everything is going to be fine. And yet that's a reporter saying mm -hmm. that. Somebody with a public platform who has the ability to shape, to respond to and help shape the, uh, the public perception of an issue like this. And that is, and that is deeply concerning. It's, it's, again, the idea that, like, we as individuals do have a responsibility to handle our shit, but you cannot allow for the larger institutions to abjure their responsibilities, which actually have much greater potential to affect the situation on the ground positively or negatively. And, and baseball's protocols, they're just, they're just not good enough. They're just not good enough. Um, I think that even in a bubble situation, like in Florida with the NBA about to start and with major league soccer going on right now, um, there is a great deal of concern. Major oh, yeah. league soccer, major league soccer seems to perhaps have dodged a bullet based on some reporting I've seen. Um, there were really bad outbreaks among two teams, FC Dallas and Nashville FC, and both teams have ended up dropping out of the tournament. Um, but what seems as though movement between teams has been relatively uh, minimal. And uh, the latest rounds of, of testing out of there suggests that maybe the bubble is, is, is holding water. Hmm. But um, 
the NBA doesn't seem like that's necessarily going to be the case. Um, and even if baseball had wanted to do a bubble, all the places where that was an option are in hotspot areas anyway. Um, it just like, like what's, what is going to happen to people if we just decide that we can't have a season? I understand the fear of players who haven't made their money um, about not playing, but um, if we had a functioning social safety net, those players wouldn't have to worry about not being paid during a pandemic, just like we all would as a society mm-hmm. yeah. wouldn't have to worry about that. Um, and, and, and especially owners, I'm, I'm, I will not listen to owners who say okay. that, that, that not having a season this year is going to be financially deleterious to them. I will not listen to it. You are all billionaires. You all own assets that will end up paying off in the long term. I will not listen to you. You don't believe um, then, that, uh, that the owners are losing a biblical amount of money, and there's a section of the Book of Job dedicated to the Marquee Sports Network. Is that yeah, uh, g- give me give me an absolute break? And that's me being very very polite about it. Um, I, 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 it's, it's, we don't need sports. We just don't. You know, there's there's nothing about the national psyche that's going to be healed by this, in my opinion. And maybe I'm being naive, and maybe I don't have my my, my finger on the, on, on the pulse of, of the nation wouldn't be the first time I've been accused of that. <laughs> uh-huh. um, but I, 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 if for me personally, like watching games next week is not going to be a welcome distraction. Hmm. It's going to be a reminder of what, of what we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I wonder if, and I ask the person, the proverbial human being who finds it to be a distraction, how they can get themselves into such a place mentally especially if they live in an area where there is a real serious outbreak going on, which by the way, is a quarter of the nation. And that's, that number is only going to go up with as as time passes. So I, 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 I am genuinely baffled. Um, And I think that to go back to the Madden idea and about individual responsibility, I think there is a mental hurdle that is not just the problem of baseball, players and baseball owners and baseball staff members, but really is a national problem. And that is there is only so much that you can do that you can, to make a decision for yourself that will comport with whatever level of risk that you are comfortable with. Um, because this disease ultimately isn't about us. We've seen the way that this disease behaves. We know just how badly and how intensely it can spread by asymptomatic transmission. We know how long you can incubate with it before you finally get it out of your system or even before you begin to display symptoms at all. Um, And we know the ways in which it can spread really, really quickly, the context in which it can spread really, really quickly. We know all of this. We know the things that we should do not to mitigate it for ourselves, but to mitigate it for our communities. and baseball players, to stay on that idea, I think understand the risks that they might be taking on for themselves. And they also understand, I think, the risks that they're potentially taking on for their families and their loved ones. But I want baseball and for America to take the next step, which is the things that you do now, the behaviors that you engage in now, they're not going to necessarily save your life or your husband or wives or children's or your parents' lives. It could save the life of the guy that you run into on the street. 
And it could potentially save the life of the person that that person runs into on the street and the cascading effect that goes on from there. If we can try and understand that degree of responsibility that we have for each other, then maybe we can handle this. Mm -hmm. But we're not there yet. And if we're not there yet, as Sean Doolittle said, we don't get the reward for a functioning society because we're not a functioning society. Right. And, uh, and that's why uh, I, I personally, and, and I, I assume you do as well, certainly supports every single player who has opted out of the season thus far and everyone who will as, as we get going. And Absolutely. I'm already uh, getting processing and getting uh, like headspace ready for an eventual shutdown of the game again, if, if and when this gets out of control. And if that's the case, right. yeah. Uh, again, we're talking about the lives of every single player. And, and as you detailed earlier, not just that, but all of the, of the people who surround baseball and, and the people who don't have the most powerful union in the world behind them, uh, putting th themselves at risk. And, and once, if and when we get to that point, I will certainly be like, yeah, you gave it a shot, but uh, but and shut it down for God's sake, because it's <laughs> more important that that we go forward with this. All and of I, that. I, uh, I'll, I'll just to, just to put a button on, it, and I think also um, we should recognize that starting up and shutting down again is worse than just not having the season at all. And again, that's a symbol for whatever everything that's going on in America, because the capitalist uh, model particularly the one in 2020 where there mm -hmm. is no regulatory state, there are no labor unions of any type of power to push back on it means that there is nothing but the dollar you make tomorrow that matters, yes. um, which ignores all the dollars that you're going to lose next week if you try and take the dollar tomorrow. Mm -hmm. um, and, and baseball owners certainly don't get that. The league certainly doesn't get that. And a lot of the media don't want to address that. It was a funny story um, that I just heard about um, somebody ran a story about the, how fun it is that like there are clubhouse attendants like playing outfield and interest squad games. Yep. Cubs yesterday. Yeah. That's a, that's a nice and cute story. But how about the thrust of that story be, isn't it fucked up and crazy that clubbies have to play outfield and interest squad games? Maybe that's an indicator of just how bad things are right now. Anthony you Rizzo know, essentially so. said that today. And not in right. Anthony Rizzo is, is no one's idea of a, of a rabble rouser or a Eugene V. Debs by any means, but right. uh, to throw a Vonnegut reference out there as well, but uh, <laughs> just to make this in, almost insufferably intellectual at this point, but why not? We, we've yeah. reached this point, but Anthony Rizzo essentially told the media today that, yeah, it's, uh, it was funny that he was out there, but also an indication that it's not working yet. And, right. and I get right. that it's not working, and I'm going to tell you it's not working. Uh, That's right. And so, yeah, they, they recognize it. And, and I would venture to guess that if enough of them do keep recognizing it at a certain point, there will be a point where they're like, yeah, we, we just can't do this. And I wanted to mention earlier, all, yeah. all of that said, and, and this is to kind of out myself a little bit as, as somewhat of a hypocrite in all this discussion, because I still have moments, like uh, my southward facing window in my apartment here in Edgewater, Chicago, on, on night games, I can see off in the distance, the lights of Wrigley Field all lit up. And a couple Sundays ago, uh, I opened up my blinds and saw them lit up for the first time in months. And I tell you, Evan, even... even 
trying to keep everything in the perspective that we've discussed about for the better part of the last 40 minutes, I still had a moment where that touched something inside of me where it was like, I had forgotten what this specific kind of happiness felt like and to feel happiness in this specific part of me. Uh, so there is still that part of my, my, I guess, fan emotional response that is not going to go away even in the face of when they start playing. I am, I am as guilty of it as anybody because the National Women's Soccer League uh, kicked off the NWSL Challenge Cup three weeks ago, a little less than three weeks ago. First team sports league uh, to come back in the United States, as a matter of fact, professional mm-hmm. women's league. And uh, it is is such an indicator of just how much better women deal with this kind of shit than men do in yep. that yep. they 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 have a much more robust uh, health and safety protocol than any men's league has proposed. Um, not a single player has tested positive um, since the, the tournament started. They were able to isolate um, the team that did get an outbreak before they entered the bubble, the Orlando Pride, and just basically cut them out of the tournament immediately. Um, everything about their plan indicates that it's working. And they even actually got to do what a lot of um, Major League Baseball players were nervous about when the bubble idea was originally proposed back in the spring was that um, NWSL players got to bring their families with them and have them enter the bubble and have them get tested and be sick. And there have been no reports of positive tests and there's no reason to disbelieve those reports. So, but even that, as, <laughs> as much as I love, and the NWSL is right up there with Major League Baseball for my favorite sports leagues um, in, 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 in the States. Uh, as much joy as I get out of watching those games, the relief it is, and it is a feeling of relief that you can have. Um, I have to be reminded that, you know, they're in Salt Lake County uh, playing their bubbles outside of Salt Lake city in Utah, very different from Orlando being in orange County in Florida, the way the NBA and MLS are um, Salt Lake County there. The, the virus is spreading, but at a much, much slower rate. Their test positive rates are much, much smaller. Their hospital capacity is much, much better. But even there, they're hovering around, that Salt Lake County is hovering at around a 10% mm. test positivity rate. And that's the threshold. That's the line where you say anything above this indicates that the virus is spreading faster than tests are able to capture it and, and isolate uh, those cases. In other words, to be able to manage the virus. So they're hovering right on that line. And what that means is you then have to ask the question, is the NWSL taking tests away from the general public? Mm-hmm. And, if you, and if you can comfortably answer for yourself that they're not, which is what MLB is arguing with their centralized lab, well, then you also have to ask, well, they're a sports league. The turnaround time for those tests are very, very have to be very, very quick. So are they slowing down results times for the general public? And that's an ethical question that um, you really have to be able to answer for yourself. In other words, is, is testing for athletes more important than testing for people in, in the public sphere? For me, it's not. Yeah, the it's absolutely the yeah. It should be obvious, but it's interesting how many epidemiologists are actually, they're a little more ambiguous uh, hmm. than, 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 maybe you or I would be. And it just comes down to the fact that um, until your test positivity rate really gets out of control and until it becomes clear that you're not only um, maybe 
having your players jump the line just for getting results, but also having them jump the line for actually getting tests, um, then, then, then maybe you can say like, well, yeah, maybe it is much more important for athletes to be able to do that, especially if we're able to manage and control everything else. Um, again, I think you and I are in agreement. It's not, I don't think that, you know, athletes are not essential workers. No, you know, no. they, they should not, they should not be able to get a test in 24 hours when Joe Schmo, it takes them five to seven business days and Joe Schmo might work in a hospital or maybe not in a hospital, but work at a long-term care facility or go down the list. The NWSL, it's as ambiguous as it gets just because the test positivity rate in Salt Lake County is right on the line. Hmm. So it's very hard to say, well, I guess technically maybe they're jumping the line a little bit in terms of turnaround time, but also the disease isn't spreading as quickly as it potentially could. They're staying in their bubble. They're keeping their people safe. So they're not affecting the outbreak. It's hard to say. It's, it's, you know, I go back and forth in my mind sometimes about it, but I know that I probably shouldn't. I should probably just able to say, no, absolutely not. And then also, I know this isn't about baseball, but we also have to remind ourselves of the mental health aspects mm-hmm. of what all well, this is all doing to people. There's been yeah. some really important reporting about the mental health effects on NWSL players. In fact, there's a player who plays for OL Reign um, named Bethany Balser, who came out in the middle of a game because she was having a panic attack. Hmm. Jeez. And and that should be a that should be a fight. That's a four alarm fire. Um, that the league who's doing a the be- a better job than anybody, in every way, shape, and form, is still generating a very serious mental health reaction in a lot of its players and. That actually does uh, does end up tying back to Major League Baseball because all of these players are living in such a constant state of uncertainty, whether they're waiting on their test results or they end up getting a positive test and then they have to self-isolate and wonder, God, who did I come in contact with? Did I give it to my family? Did I give it to some stranger? What does that mean? And that also, like, what does that do to the composition of the team? Because this is this is supposed to be spring training. We're supposed to be getting ready for a season mm-hmm. and players are dropping out left and right, either permanently or just for a few days or for two weeks. Um, and then they also have to live with the ideas like, well, what if I, if I get it, am I going to be no symptoms or am I going to be like Freddie Freeman? And if I'm like Freddie Freeman, what does that mean for the long-term prospects of my career? Yeah. Which I think maybe that's not also not getting reported on enough. Because we know, even though young people don't die at the same rates from this as the elderly do, this can have really serious, serious yeah. consequences, whether it's with your lungs or your, or your heart. Two things that athletes really need to be working at optimal levels. Yeah. You know? um, um, all the stuff that we've heard about um, um, uh, athletes that got this pretty early, like what they're struggling with right now that's going to weigh on you mentally. Um, and, and then you not just have to be at peak physical condition to play a major league baseball season, but you need to be in peak mental condition. And how do you do that when you just wonder, is it going to be me tomorrow? Is it going to be me today? Is it going to be my teammate tomorrow or today? My family? I, I just don't, you have to have a very, very strong mental health infrastructure in place to help players deal with that and a very strong culture that allows people, your players, to be able to talk about their feelings. Mm-hmm. And teams are better than at that now than they were, say, 10 years ago, or even five years ago, yeah. 
Are they up to the task for something like this? <laughs> I wonder. I really wonder. I mean, talking about player mental health and uh, immediately springing to mind that I, I can already name a couple players who have had to miss significant time in their careers because they had to get their mental health in, in order at, uh, between like Zach Greinke and Joey Votto. And Absolutely. To, so you're, and that's just, you know, a couple of guys who come to the top of my head. And I, I got to imagine that levels of anxiety and, and depression have probably got to run pretty deep in baseball like they do in any kind of performing, uh, performing industry. And to then add to the fact that you are now being told that you have to perform at the highest level in the middle of this pandemic to all of that regular mental health stuff that every player has to go through. And yeah, I, I can understand why an NWSL player would have a breakdown in the middle of a game. And, and geez, I, I unfortunately hadn't even thought of that in terms of MLB, but yeah, I mean, I could see it. That's yeah. And, and it's, you know, my, I, I'm the son of a therapist. I'm the son of a mental health professional. And I, have always engaged in mental health wellness. You know, I, I am in therapy. I'm on medication. I have no, I'm an open book when it comes to my own mental health. And I have been openly critical in the past of the way that leagues handle mental health. But it goes back to what you said, Ken, like, oh, they're on the field. Yeah. And you don't, and then you stop thinking about it. And mm -hmm. it's, it's something that we as people in the media, we have to do a better job. And I include myself in that. We have to do a much better job about remembering what it takes to be able to do this very well uh, uh, meant from a mental health standpoint. And then what a disruption this all is to be able to, 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 to handle that and to be able to, and be able to thrive, you know, which it's, we're, to get through COVID-19 isn't about thriving, it's about surviving. And you can't survive a Major League Baseball season. As much as we joke, like, oh, yeah, the dog days of summer, like, you know, six months, you, it's, it's a little bit of survival. But it's a lot of work just to be able to do that in, 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 the, best, in the best of all worlds. So it, it, and for me, it's one of those reasons that should also indicate, like, this, we shouldn't be having a season because I just, I, I, you know, I say I wonder, but really I'm a little bit more convinced that it, I, don't, I don't think we're up to the task of being able to, to make sure that people come out of this with minimal scarring. Yeah. And, and, Physically and mentally. And I, I wish and, I could and, and, offer more of a rebuttal, but I mean. And, and that's what I'm, why I found Ian Desmond's statement, if we want to talk about supporting players who opt out, what I found so powerful about that is that it wasn't just about, uh, you know, my wife is immunocompromised or my father has an underlying condition and I need to do what's best for my family. He brought in everything, you know, he talked about mental health. He talked about labor. He talked about uh, structural racism and homophobia and misogyny in the game. He talked about everything, and it tied into what I think a lot of NBA players have been raising in terms of their concerns, where we need to maybe think about taking a pause from playing this year, not just to make sure that we're safe physically and that we can keep our mental health in check as best we can, but also use this as an opportunity to shine a light on a lot of the uh, – institutional discrimination that lives inside of our spaces yes. we need to do we have a chance to really do all of it mm -hmm. and 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 i was so impressed with desmond for 
saying that. And, yeah. and I, I hope a lot of players follow his lead. I thought it was very interesting that Jack Flaherty brought up um, the ways in which he felt he uh, failed Bruce Maxwell because um, Bruce Maxwell is in the news again, mm-hmm. you know, calling out a lot of both white and black players for not having his back when he took a knee three years a ago. Truth. And a lot of truth. And, that Brian article. Yeah. It's, it's, it's all, it's all truth. And, and Flaherty, you know, he's, he's had his own, and he will admit just how complex and complicated he feels about being a biracial guy in baseball and what that means. And I'll maybe give him a little bit more slack just because it was his rookie year and he barely played in 2017 when all that was going down. And, but for him to come out and say, like, we, we let, we let Maxwell down and it would be great to see some players taking me this year um, to show some solidarity and try and put some of that stuff. Right. Is, is just shows that baseball and sports need to deal with the virus and they also need to use this moment that we've been living in over the last two months as an opportunity to to address some pretty big problems yeah and 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 i and i baseball is the worst league at doing that because it's so predominant is so predominantly white and it's so predominantly conservative and its audience is so predominantly old and you wrap all of that in a neat bow and it you just got those quotes from, from Howard Bryant stirring ESPN were heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I hope that that has a ripple effect um, going forward. Yeah. Uh, and that calls to mind that Jack Flaherty, uh, just in response to that, it's one thing, it's, it's amazing to hear any baseball player say that, but especially one who's going to be after be playing the majority of his games in St. Louis, one of the absolute right. worst places to suddenly get an activist conscience and realize that, yeah, I have to display this. And uh, as a Cub fan, I can't say good on you, Jack Flaherty, any more than, than I can. Because that's that really, it, it takes guts in baseball culture for anyone to say that, but especially one playing in St. Louis right now. I, I, I think that's such a credit to him that, that he's been so public about it. Uh, yeah. I'm also reminded of uh, Joey Votto's uh, piece in USA Today, I think, uh, shortly after uh, uh, the after George Floyd and after yeah, it was about, a, about a week, about a week and a half after Floyd. Died, yeah. yeah. And, and how honest he was about how, when he first heard about what happened to George Floyd and, and the police brutality and the police murder of George Floyd, that he, uh, even in talking to his quote, unnamed black player, which Amir Garrett, we all know it, <laughs> but he, he just, I was just surprised. I thought, I thought it might've been like Brandon Phillips or something. I mean, yeah, that, that could, but, yeah, I could but, uh, yeah, because I because they I mean they played together for so long. Right. I just assume that they have a very close relationship. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. But and he reflexively dismissed it as soon as he heard it as, as right. it can't be as bad. Right. And, it, it's and just, did a little bit of and did a little bit of tone policing too. He's like, right. I don't appreciate the way that you talk to me. I'm ending the conversation. Right. Yeah. And then uh, and it shouldn't take obviously having to actually watch that horrific video to change your mindset. But nonetheless, Joey Vada was at least able to realize, oh, I am the one that's in the wrong here. I am the one that needs to shut the fuck up. I am the one that needs to listen. And going forward, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to write this so I can hold myself to it. And dear God, that is what baseball culture needs more of at this point. I thought I was very, very impressed with that because it, it, does, it does all of the things that you kind of need white people to do right now, which is admit ways, right, just admit the ways in which you fucked up 
recognize that it's not an individual issue, that it's a structural one, um, not try and sweep, sweep it all away with just kind of like a slogan or, a, or an empty gesture. And also recognize, as you say, like, I'm, in, I'm admitting how I fucked up. Now I'm stepping back. And I'm gonna and I'm gonna and I'm gonna start learning, mm-hmm. and and not in that corporate speak kind of way, the listening and learning. Like he, it, it actually came from a very genuine place. You know, it's it's the kind of I know she's a controversial figure right now, um, but Robin D'Angelo, author of White Fragility, really preaching the idea of white people needing to have a kind of humility around race. Yeah. You know? And and yeah, to decenter yourself, but also not use that as an opportunity to. Um, ignore the ways in which you, you've made mistakes. I think Colin McHugh made a, a, a similar gesture. Clayton Kershaw, I thought, had yeah, a very right. interesting comment where he basically said, like, well, actions speak louder than words, so I don't need to speak. Um, but then black members of the Dodgers organization basically said, your silence speaks volumes, man. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it can't be just words, but yeah. it can't be just action either. We need to know where you stand on this. And so... Yeah, maybe there is a sea change coming in the culture, at least the beginnings of one. And I think that's really, really significant. Yeah, and, and we are seeing players and uh, and especially a lot of the black players in baseball finally uh, finally being listened to. Uh, and yeah. because of that, they're, it seems like that they're saying a lot more that they probably have held back. Like when, when I read the Ian Desmond post on Instagram, uh, my first thought was, I did not know Ian Desmond was this impressive a person. And my second thought was, <laughs> how shitty is baseball culture that I didn't know that Ian Desmond is, is this impressive? Because He never talked. Yeah, there, there's no doubt that clubhouse culture, I'm sure he felt, was the thing holding him back. And not just him. Yeah. Lionel DeShields have, has uh, repeatedly talked about how uh, standing across the field from Bruce Maxwell and seeing him kneel and not kneeling in solidarity that he felt was a real missed opportunity for him as, as a black person in baseball to to show solidarity and to show make and to make a statement and going forward, he is not going to let that repression kind of get in his way of saying what needs to be said. Uh, and uh, Jason Hayward is one who is, who is speaking out a lot yeah. more about what he's endured, especially as a minor leaguer in the Braves system uh, yeah. where he talked about Freddie Freeman uh, coming up to him after a game. And I think like Rome, Georgia, and almost to the point of tears saying, I, I, what was, I didn't know that this is what you go through. Uh, yeah. So we are we are at the very least starting to hear a lot more uncomfortable truths from the black players in baseball, and uh, obviously it sucks that they all have to to go through this and have have had to go through the clubhouse culture that that held them down for so long from speaking it. But I'm at least taking the fact that I'm hearing what sounds like a lot more honesty from them as maybe an encouraging sign going forward. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, it, it's such a, rep- baseball is such a repressive culture. It's such, there's such a law of omerta and in, 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 in it gets expressed in so many ways, whether it's um, the unwritten rules and the beanball culture and um, the idea that you, you gotta, you gotta show, don't tell um, your, your attitude, which as we all know, is just a form of racial, racial police behavior, like behavior policing. Um in that, um, yeah, what's, what happens in the clubhouse stays in the clubhouse, no matter how repugnant or how repellent that behavior may be. Um, the fact that the Players Alliance uh, now exists 
yes. as, as, as an entity that a lot of black players are now um, organizing um, their, their mission, whether it be through speaking and, and advocating and, and donating um, is, yeah, uh, it, it, it's a, it's a reminder that you, this league can't dine out on the legacy of Jackie Robinson forever. You know, it's got to start, it's got to start owning that. Yeah. It's, it's start. And, you know, Jackie Robinson himself would be the last person in the world who would want to just be a statue or a retired number for baseball. Like you go back to in 1972 when they honored him before that, that year's world series. And he only agreed to show up because he was going to tell everybody that was there at the ballpark and the commissioner right in front of his face that, I would be a lot happier as soon as I see a black face in that coaching box at third base or in the dugout managing like to, to to his, almost his dying breath. He was someone who wanted to change things for the better. And, uh, and yeah, if he were around today, the only thing he would want anything to do with would be to be part of the players Alliance and to be uh, showing solidarity and helping to guide them. I think going forward. Yeah. Uh, but enough of that. Uh, yeah. How's John uh, so, Lester Sinker looking? Yeah, now that we've solved racism, fellow white guy. Jeez. Uh, <laughs> uh, one more thing I did want to tell, talk to you about. Uh, mm. We've gone long, and I love that we're going long because this is great. Yeah. Um, you, sir, uh, on the subject of barrier breakers, as far as I know, are the first uh, op- openly LGBTQ member to be on MLB, MLB Network in any capacity. Uh, is that? Am I correct in that? As far as I know, I am I am the first, but it's such a um, it's 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 not a it's not a sash that I wear around, uh, you know, I, because it's a very complicated thing. Um, as 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 you well know, uh, plenty of people can move through spaces like that while not being out at work. Um, and I'm sure that there are people who have been on that network who fit that bill. I don't know who they are. I probably will never know who they are. Um, and, and, and for me, the, the, the public performance of being out is a funny thing when you're in the media too, because I think sometimes you forget what that means unless you plant yourself on camera when you're live and you just say, Hey, I'm bisexual guys, you know, <laughs> and, uh, or you give some interview where that's the subject uh, at hand. And I've never done any of those things. Um, uh, to, to my regret, I'll, I'll, I'll be perfectly honest. Um, I, I, there, two years ago, Josh Hader, after his homophobic tweets had been surfaced while he was literally on the mound during the all-star <laughs> game, those came out and he gave his little wishy-washy apology afterward and said, I was a different person back then. I was a teenager, like yada, yada. And um, a few days after that, the Dodgers had were in Milwaukee. It was Milwaukee's first home series, the Brewers' first home series since the, the All-Star game, since all of that had come to light. It was a big series because that was um, Manny Machado's first series in a Dodger uniform because he'd just been traded from Baltimore. And... Um, uh, the first game that Josh Hader came in, which I believe was either a Friday night or it was a Saturday night. I can't remember which, but he came in and the, and Miller Park, most of Miller Park gave him a standing ovation. And I was on the air the following Monday. Mm. 
and not going to name any names, but we talked about it in the production meeting and the consensus around the room between the producers and some of the other on-air talent was basically, eh, it's not a homophobic thing that they're doing. You know, they're just standing up for their player. They're trying to show support for their player because he's been dragged in the media recently. And uh, then one of the other panelists said, uh, well, I don't want, I, I, this is so terrible. I don't want him to, to kill himself. He's been getting death threats. You know, I, I worry for the kid's mental health. I worry for his well-being. And I sat there and I said, like, did you read the tweets? <laughs> did you read what he said? Yeah. You know, he literally said, and I'm quoting, I don't like gay people. Um, yeah, okay, so he was 17 years old. So what? Mm -hmm. You got to own that. You got to yeah. understand what that means. And, and you also have to be prepared to take the hit for saying it. Um, and... You know, I said that and they were like, oh, well, but yeah, but still, you know, he was so young and like, he's just getting so treated so badly and you just don't want him to, to hurt himself or something. And that was my moment. That was my moment to say, well, you know what, guys, I'm bisexual. I'm a queer person. And this tells me, these comments tell me from a major league baseball player that I'm not allowed here. I'm not wanted in this space. I don't have the right to be in this space. That's what that comment tells me. And I didn't say that. And we ended up spiking the, the segment. We didn't end up going to air with it, which, you know, I don't know what I would have done if we had, if I would have just come out and said it right there on the air. I like to think that I would have, but I didn't say it in the meeting because whenever I'm there at MLB Network, I'm always the junior guy in the room. Um, and there's that pressure. Like, if I say this, no one in this room is going to admit to being homophobic, but are they going to look at me as a troublemaker? You know, are they going to consider me difficult? Are they going to consider me um, too focused on identity politics rather than the games and the players? And I bow to that pressure and I'm not proud of it. I, and, I, and I regret it. I regret not doing that. Um, standing up and saying, this is who I am. And he is trying to erase me from this, this industry by saying that. That's, the, that's, that's what those comments say to everyone who is like me. And um, I, I, you know, have really kind of struggled with that over the last couple of years about not stepping up and using my platform because not everybody gets a platform like that to be able to own those moments. And um, I know that I wouldn't do that that way again, but it doesn't matter because it still went down that way. And um, it could have been an opportunity to really start a conversation, a very serious and honest conversation. Even if I was never on the air at that network again, it could have, it could have, it could have brought something to the fore. And I think also I, you know, your, your listenership, I don't know how much they will relate to this or appreciate this, but something I, I struggle with as a bisexual person who spent the first 25 or 26 years of his life living as a straight person, as a very heteronormative, more or less heteronormative straight person, um, you feel 
you don't know how much you will how much you're allowed to be public with that you know like how much it's getting emotional talking about this but go ahead um just how much you feel you kind of get to be part of the broader queer community because i know that especially when you add in the fact that i'm a i am a cisgendered man and i'm a white guy like it can be so easy for me to move through the world with that privilege folding heterosexuality and heteronormativity onto that as well um all the steps that you don't take to be as publicly expressive of the identity that you know you have, how much you end up letting people down. And I struggle with that. And I'm, and I'm certainly, and it's one of those things where like, I don't, if someone asks me, I never hide it. And I will certainly offer the information to people when it is requested, um, and that's all well and good, but I've, I, I've always been on the side of the to come out or not to come out question of, of being, I think everybody should come out. I think because using your public, using your public expression of identity makes people feel less alone, and it makes the tent of who we are and what we are and what we represent and how we look and how we act and how we think it just makes it so much bigger and so much richer and so much more varied, which is the way you chip away at institutional homophobia and transphobia and biphobia and down the list. And, um, but because I can move through the world as a straight guy, I'm one of those bisexuals who has never been in a relationship with a man. I've had sexual experiences with men, but I don't, it, it's, it's just my, it's just my own personal struggle of like, how do I, because I know I'm not like this down the middle 50, 50 bisexual. I'm like, I'm not so naive to think that, um, um, my identity is inherently not bisexual because of those things. I know that that's not true. Um, but I have always had this difficulty of being able to just stare down the barrel of the lens and say, like, I live in a very traditionally masculine world and I can make people think that I'm a masculine straight dude if I want to. And that's letting people down when I do that mm-hmm. to, some, to some degree, when I can't say, like, yeah, okay, I'm all of those things, but I'm also bisexual. And also, this is a very bro-y space that I kind of hate. I don't enjoy it. I can move through it, mm-hmm. but I don't like it. And that's a lot of, I think, internalized biphobia that I have had to struggle with and figure out how to expunge, you know, because, and I think we all deal with that, whether it's internalized homophobia or internalized biphobia or or internalized misogyny for for um, women uh, for some women who have to think about that. Um, it's, so it's just it's 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 an ongoing struggle. It's an ongoing battle. And um, you know, I I I 
I endeavor to do better in the future. So to answer your question, as far as I know, I'm the first. Excellent. I'm the first yeah. queer person on MLB Network. Well, uh, gosh, yeah, that's a lot, lot to unpack. Uh, but thank you for sharing all that, first of all, because that's, uh, I mean, it means a lot to me. Just, I mean, even if we weren't recording this, it would mean a lot yeah. to me to hear all that. Um, just to kind of go back, I guess, to the beginning of your answer real fast. I mean, everything I was hearing and talking about your discussion with uh, with the show producers and the, the unnamed fellow panelists, uh, it sounds exactly like you just ran into a big heaping hunk of baseball culture there. Uh, yeah. ev everything that, that we just discussed in terms of what, uh, what I'm sure Ian Desmond ran against when talk, trying to talk about institutionalized racism and homophobia and stuff like that, where it's you, you wonder, is this my place since I'm relatively, I'm not as experienced as everybody else. I mean, that's the classic, uh, know your place, Rook, uh, be seen, not heard bullshit that, that we know right. these guys dine out on for have, and have, I mean, that's been a part of the game as, as long as there's been a game. So, I mean, that, that in and of itself there, all, all of those feelings that you had, that, that is not your fault. I mean, that is, that is running up against something that is so ingrained and so pervasive that it, it is going to take the combined effort of hundreds of people and probably over the span of years, if not decades, to eradicate. And that's if everybody wants to go in that direction from that point forward. So that is not something that you should attack yourself with for feeling any of that in that moment. That's, that's the culture making itself known to you. Uh, and when you were then kind of describing about uh, someone who lived the first 25, you said, years of your life? 25 or 26, yeah. Yeah, in the closet and... Uh, and I was frantically waving on the other end of, of our discussion because, dude... I think it, you and I have talked about this before in yeah, the past. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I did not come out until I was 35, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and this is something that uh, I'm sure my listenership does not need to know at all. But in, uh, in my biweekly therapy sessions, and I just came from one, it, it keeps coming up over and over again, the sense that I am constantly feeling like I'm trying to catch up for maybe the 10, 15, maybe even 20 years of my life that I missed right. out on for not being honest with myself at the point where, I mean, now, the, the way I describe it, it feels like so many gay men I encounter are playing it on expert and I'm on tutorial. Level. Right. Uh, right. And uh, just... And this, is a, this, this is not an uncommon experience. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and I guess to that point, that maybe that it's something that so many of us get trapped in our own heads about that we feel that that we're somehow lesser than for some reason, whether it's the time in our lives where we came out or because we can present in traditional mask ways sometimes. So you don't have to, uh, I, I guess, be identified immediately as someone who is LGBTQ, that somehow that makes us lesser than. And right. the, the fact of the matter is, is and I, I think we're both kind of getting at this, is that that's something that that's, I guess, all of our jobs to maybe not break out from, but just kind of be more compassionate toward ourselves about that, that, uh, that uh, we have all these forces telling us that we're less than, but we're really kind of not. Uh, that's, and yeah, I, th thank you for saying that, Ken. I, I, I it, it means a lot uh, yeah, to, to hear it and I, and I appreciate it. Um, and I think that, 
as you alluded to, it, 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 it becomes even more fraught when you work in very heteromasculine yes. spaces like sports. I mean, is there any more heteromasculine space than sports, especially baseball? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, maybe for, for maybe, maybe for, yeah, um, Murphy can still find a job. So yeah, right. Um, it's 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 a pervasive problem, and we just we just had Pride Month to end a couple of weeks ago, and so it's definitely been on my mind, and even on your mind, I'm sure, um, that we um, always have been told. I think that, uh, especially for me, I think my experience it's almost a feeling of cognitive dissonance is that I grew up in a very liberal household and I had very liberal friends and I went to an extremely liberal college and I live in New York city and, um, surround myself with very liberal ideas, particularly when it comes to LGBTQ issues. And so I have, I think before I came out, I had a, almost what I just would describe as like a reverse closeting where, especially for someone who's bisexual, who can say like, I am a a very liberal person and I have very um, diverse and complex friendships and relationships and I don't fit the traditional masculine mold. Um, But in this odd way, that gave me the shield to not confront the actual identity that I was running from in this really funny way. And then to be, and then to all of a sudden enter the world of sports uh, kind of ended up triggering a lot of those hmm. feelings where all of a sudden I felt, I was like, I'm finally out of the closet. I'm finally good with all this stuff. And now I feel like I'm getting stuck back in again yeah. Yeah. in this weird way. And again, because you are heteromasculine and you're around, you know, I grew up, um, I threw my first baseball when I was two. I'm sure you were probably similar. Like mm-hmm. this is the world that we grew up in, no matter how liberal or, or, LGBTQ uh, friendly and activists and, and, and as advocates we were when we were young, um, we still have this other thing going on. And just, you know, I, I, get, I know, sorry, I keep bringing up women's soccer, but even in women's right. soccer, which is probably the most LGBTQ friendly sports league in, in the world, the NWSL, and there are still there's still a left back for the North Carolina courage named Jalen Daniels, who is very outspoken in her homophobia and mm. her, her, her beliefs that uh, gay marriage is a sin against God. So even there, yeah. even in a place like that, you have to deal with it. So um, yeah. All right. I'll start forgiving myself a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and maybe, and geez, I'm, I'm just pure spitballing at this point. Uh, Cause I, I, I think we we both established neither of us are experts at all in, in, in this particular field other than maybe knowing ourselves better, but uh, that, and maybe the key to some of this just as a, as a community going forward is to, I guess, acknowledge our own vulnerability vocally more. And because that's a way yeah. that others can kind of find ways to go, yeah, I, I actually do identify with that. And you are certainly not alone with that. Uh, and maybe that's, that's just kind of like a bridge to maybe greater understanding. And Jesus Christ, that's, 
This, this baseball, baseball, maybe more than any other place, uh, yeah. needs that. Needs that because yeah. we're, oh, I mean, we're, yeah. we're so, we're so far removed from Glenn Burke and Billy yeah. Bean at this point. It's hard to, it's almost hard to kind of wrap your mind around the fact that, you know, no, no, no player since Bean was out of the game has come out even in retirement, mm-hmm. which is kind of remarkable to think yeah. about. Um, uh, it, it's, it's, it, yeah, it's such an indicator of like what the culture tells you is acceptable. And again, uh, you know, we need to rally to, to Ian Desmond's cause and mm-hmm. say that it's, it's, it's racism, it's sexism and it's homophobia. All of these things need to be, need to be confronted head on and your meatheaded bro-y bullshit in the clubhouse can't be tolerated anymore. Yeah. You're right. It's going to be a long journey. But yeah. I think you're right. Uh, to, to be able to let ourselves be vulnerable might be the first step. Yeah. And uh, thank you for taking that step with me, my friend. That was... That well, was thank you for letting me do it. I, I, I knew, you know, we've known each other for a long time. And so I think we've also had conversations in the past about being baseball fans and in, mm-hmm. in, 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 in also identifying in ways that a lot of baseball fans and players might not like. So... It's a struggle. It's a struggle. So I, I, I thank you for giving me the platform. Yeah, I'm, I'm there for you, and I'm glad you're there for me. And uh, it feels weird. Anything else you'd like to plug while you're here, Evan? Um, yeah. So how is John Lester Sinker looking? Uh, better than I don't, know. Somebody, I don't give. I don't. I was thinking about this the other day. Like I haven't looked at depth charts. I haven't looked at projection models. I haven't given two shits about what minor leaguers are being added to the 60-player pool. I don't care one iota and one of the reasons is obviously the pandemic and the fact that i just don't believe that we're going to complete a season and if we do i think there's going to be a lot of carnage uh that are that will happen in order to get that done but also even though a lot of um statistics and standings do stabilize after 60 games this isn't a real season it's just not going to be a real season at all um everybody keeps citing the fact that you know the nationals wouldn't have made the playoffs if if the first 60 games of 2019 was the the season and so it's just hard for me to get invested even from like the perspective of oh team chaos anything could happen it could be the royals and the reds you know or whatever um i i can't i can't find myself to be too invested in any of that I guess. Which is a shame because I'd like to be. I mean, that's yeah. the that's the ideal situation, you know. I'd, yeah. I'd like for sports to be a distraction from the real world, but they're not, and frankly, they never are. Yeah, and that's I mean, and that's the world we're living in right now. Uh, yeah. But uh, I'm glad you're in the world I'm living in right now, Evan. I'm glad you're in the world, man. <laughs>